You made it. You found us. This is the Dose of Support podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Vanessa Casper, and I'm a nurse practitioner and healthcare worker just like you. Here at Dose of Support, we bring the whole interdisciplinary team in healthcare together. We hear stories, we have role representation, and we talk about self-care in healthcare. Remember, Dose of Support, it's guests. Hosts are not affiliated or representing an employer or organization. Here, we are sharing our own thoughts and ideas. Remember, I'm not your healthcare provider, and my guests are not here to provide healthcare either. Seek out care from your own healthcare professional. And remember to protect privacy and follow HIPAA. It is so hard out there sometimes, and the only people that really understand it are you guys, healthcare workers. So join me and let's get a dose of support. Welcome back to The Huddle this week. I'm here with a public service announcement that flying with a toddler is an Olympic sport. Um, We didn't go to Tokyo, but y'all, it was like a wrestling event. I don't even know. But we're back home now. And I wanted to touch on how we talked about new beginnings last week. We welcomed the Dosies back to episode 51, and this week we have a fabulous interview. But I have been feeling called to do something more, to take Dose of Support a step further, to create resources or be a dose of support in some way that I'm not already. I don't really know what that means yet. But remember last week, I said that there are new beginnings and there's fear around that. And so I'm feeling that right now because I'm really not sure what the future holds for dose of support. But I know that I'm here creating a fabulous show and a great network of people and helping to share these stories and this self-care. But like, what else can I do. And so I'm really thinking about that. If you have any ideas, please send them my way. Um, I would love to take this another step further. I have Georgia on this week and we both wanted to give a strong trigger warning in this episode. It deals with pediatrics, suicidal ideation, suicide attempts. Um, and of course, on the show, we always talk mental health and healthcare and disparities that exist, all of that. We always talk that stuff, but this particular event that Georgia will be talking about affected her so profoundly. And I think what's important is to share what she went through and the resilience around that. It's a fabulous episode and I hope you guys enjoy the interview. Georgia Mitchell has a bachelor's in paramedicine science, a separate diploma in therapeutic nutrition, and is a mental health advocate out of Queensland, Australia. Welcome, Georgia, to Dose of Support. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be speaking with you today. I, Before we started recording, I said, well, what is a mental health advocate in your words? And I really liked your definition. So as a paramedic, If you're a mental health advocate, what does that mean? Yeah, so my interpretation of a mental health advocate in the context of paramedicine is someone that really advocates and pushes to destigmatize mental illness and mental distress, both in our patients and in our colleagues. So for me, a mental health advocate in my field is someone that works every day to, yeah, limit that stigma and educate people and let them know that it's okay to actually discuss and speak about these things openly. That's awesome. And I think 
breaking down that stigma, you would think that it doesn't exist in healthcare. Like you would think that we were enlightened enough or educated enough to not perpetuate a stigma like like there is on mental health issues, but it's there, isn't oh, it? Oh, most certainly it's there. I actually read a recent um, systematic review. There was 27 international studies and they reported on over, I think it was 31,000 ambulance personnel. Um, and they found that the mm. estimated prevalence of post-traumatic stress disorder and depression were above 20% in those ambulance personnel. Oh, that yeah. Was studied. That does not surprise yeah. me. Like yeah. I... <laughs> I think about what the paramedics and EMS personnel in the United States see and go through and what they bring to our emergency departments. And it's not for me, man. I, so let's talk a little bit about what you do. I think paramedicine is probably different country to country. So what's a day in the life as Georgia like? Yeah, yeah. So we in Australia, I know that in America, um, often your EMS workers are paramedics and also firefighters. Is that right? Yeah, sometimes. Well, I think most of the time our firemen or firewomen are, um, they're at least an EMT basic, which is like the first step certification. But a paramedic degree is at least a two-year associate's degree. And so that is like the next step up. Yes, right. Okay. So in um, Australia, um, our paramedics, similar to yours, we go through a three-year bachelor um, degree at university, and then we will have a one-year placement on road where we are a probationer paramedic um, and we learn sort of the ropes on the road and learn how to deal with different crises and scene safety and everything for a whole year before we can actually call ourselves a qualified paramedic. Um, So in terms of a day in the life, like my job is ever-changing. It's so multifaceted. We deal with such a range of emergencies in people's day-to-day lives, everything from psychological injuries or people experiencing mental distress all the way to really low acuity injuries like sprained ankles, sprained wrists, for example. And then we can do all of that in a day, then go to a live birth. So we're also trained in very basic sort of midwifery skills and then all the way to Mm -hmm. uh, massive Mm -hmm. road accidents. So in terms of a day in the life, every single day is so different um, and it is is so (laughs) dynamic. Like there is just such a wide range of things that that we have to cover. But, um, yeah, our shifts are 12 hours in length. That will be the shortest shift that we do if we're not working overtime that day. And the normal roster over here in Australia is four days on and then five days off. Okay. So what is, I, I love 12 hour shifts and I, I also used to love night shifts. So do you have to rotate in between those? Yeah. Yep. So we usually the roster will be two 12 hour day shifts. So 7am to 7pm and then two night shifts on the tail end um, of that working week. I can't believe you liked night shift. I loved night shift. Like I wish I was still on night shift. Yeah. Yeah. It was my jam, but you know, like I, it's different. So I, it was in the hospital and it was, you know, in a more routine based environment than, than what you're talking about. So like I knew what, I knew what to expect when I went to work and (laughs) 
that way I could like plan my sleep accordingly, I guess. But um, what's the best part of what you do? Well, that's a very, very profound question. The best part of what I do is probably getting the privilege of being able to step inside anyone's home and having their immediate trust. I think that is such a fragile and precious thing in life. And to be able to be given that responsibility, I find to be one of the most rewarding parts of this job. Like just immediately, as soon as they see you, they have their complete trust in you. And I think carrying that responsibility is something that I take very seriously and it's something that I really do wow. love and cherish about my job. Yeah. Oh, I already trust you. <laughs> I even met you. <laughs> All right. Um, okay. So what's the worst part? Because I'm guessing you see a lot of stuff. The worst part, and this will change obviously for every paramedic that you ask, but the worst and most heart-wrenching and painful thing that I see um, is anything to do with youth mental health issues. So kids under the age of 12 experiencing suicidal ideation and suicidal thoughts and attempting suicide, that to me is just the hardest thing to see and then having to console the parents and try to educate them and make them realise that their child is unwell, they're not crazy. It's just like not something that you would wish upon your worst enemy and then to see someone so fragile at such a young age having to bear that weight is just incredibly difficult. Yeah. What a responsibility too. Mm. Like I'm sure that these parents are just like looking at you like what do I do? Yeah. Yeah. Like what do I do and where do I go from here? And I'm only 24 years of age. So I'm very mindful when I speak to parents that have what 30 years of experience on me in terms of like dealing with children and being a parent and having that responsibility of being a parent. I'm very mindful when I do give advice because you never want to come across as patronizing because I don't know the path that they've walked and how long it took them to get there and what their relationship's like with their child. So it's a very, yeah, it's it's kind of like a very fine balancing act that you, that you have to sort of walk um, in those situations, which is quite difficult sometimes. Wow. Mm. All right. And I'm guessing, so your story has a little bit to do with that. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. It, it. So let's, let's take a break. And when we come back, Georgia's going to share a story about mental health advocacy in her work. So stay tuned. back from the break and I have Georgia Mitchell here all the way from Queensland, Australia, and she's a paramedic there here to share a story. So go for it. I'm ready, Georgia. No worries. So I would like to preface this story with a bit of a trigger warning. Um, This story contains themes of um, suicidal ideation and a suicide attempt. So If that triggers you, I would recommend to maybe stop listening now. Um, But anyway, in my second year on road, so still in the very embryonic stages of my career, I was on my third day shift and it was in the middle of an Australian summer, which is 42 degree Celsius days, a very dry arid heat and I was working and for us Fahrenheit people that is well over 100 degrees yeah 
Yes. Yes. So, uh, yes, very warm. And I was working in a semi-rural setting. I was on my third day shift, so my third um, 12-hour shift, and I had worked on call the two nights previous. So I'd taken the ambulance home with me and gotten called out during the night. So I was on very limited amount of sleep. I was very dehydrated, very hot, and it was sort of a battle against the climate and the working conditions that I was in. Um, It was 6.30 at night and we were on our way back to station and I felt so relieved. I was thinking, thank you, God, I am so tired right now and I really need to go home and eat and drink some water. We got about halfway home and we got turned around to an asthma attack and I was thinking, okay, an asthma attack, we can do it. It's all good. Like just muster up the very last ounce of energy that you've got. You can do this. It's okay. (laughs) And we're driving back into town, so in the opposite direction of where my station was and we were driving past all these little suburban roads and then the dispatch got on the radio again and they said, I'm so sorry, guys, I'm so sorry to do this to you, but you have a 15-year-old hanging um, that is currently in cardiac arrest and we were the closest ambulance. I just remember my brain going completely white like I could not think about anything I was so dehydrated I remember the feeling of my boots hitting the pavement and I could still feel the heat of this person's driveway emanating from the concrete up into my boots and I was just like I feel so unwell I grabbed the defibrillator and the oxygen kits and I was swaying back and forth sort of about to pass out and we got on scene and There the patient was in the bathroom with a perfectly tied noose, very, very young. Um, And I just remember taking every bit of energy that I had left to pull her down off off this rope and work on her to get her back, which we did, which was a really, really good result. But I just remember being absolutely flattened. And then we had to drive her an hour and a half to the nearest mental health facility, which is a very big barrier for people in rural environments to access mental health facilities because they can be so far away. Um, I got back to station at about 11.30 p.m. that night by the time we handed her over and transported her and driven back and, and everything like that. Subsequently from that event, I actually had heat stroke and I was in bed for two days almost delirious in this really small rural town so far away from my family Um, Mm. and yeah that was actually the breaking point or the precipice of my whole journey with my own diagnosis of PTSD and mental health and that was about six months ago now and I've been in recovery ever since but yeah, that job really did change my life and it really sent me on a journey of discovering how intense mental health diagnoses can be and how they affect you as a person. I mean, I'm just processing. I'm processing what you said because um it's a bit triggering for me and I didn't think I didn't think what you would say would be, but anyone that's heard episode 0 Um, of the show kind of knows why but what a profound um, thing for anyone to go through and it just goes to show what we are exposed to as healthcare workers and often PTSD is assigned to veterans to soldiers um, to victims of crimes things that certainly I mean certainly they should be. I mean, those yeah. those people 
those people have suffered. I'm not, I'm not trying to minimize that, but what's very interesting is I have heard in my career, well, this is what you signed up for. Yes. And how intense is that? Nobody does. Wow. Yep. No, nobody signs up for this. Nobody no. signs up to see a young person hang themselves. No. No one signs up for that. No. And, and even though like seeing hard things is part of the job, what what I found very difficult and why dose of support is here sometimes is that there isn't something in place to help you. No, because it, if it if it is part of the job, then like, how am I supposed to handle it? How am I supposed to process it? How am I supposed to get through that? Yes, like give me the coping mechanisms to to cope with that. Yeah, and so did you get any of that in your training? No. So okay. at university, we had like a very small subject for you know, talking about our physical health and everything. But in terms of learning how to compartmentalize and, as you said, process trauma and how to self-regulate and how to pick up on your own warning signs and when to speak to a psychologist, when to speak to a psychiatrist, when to take mental health leave, that is not something that was discussed at all. So it's been a massive learning journey for me and that's why I am so passionate about mental health advocacy for emergency services workers and people that are that are in the health care profession because exactly as you said we don't have those supports in place and it is so crazy sometimes to think about the level of trauma and the culmination of trauma like workplace stress and patients declining in front of you stress or compiling on top of one another with no sort of out or ability to educate ourselves and recognize the signs when we're declining in ourselves. Like it's absolutely mind blowing. Okay. So you go home, you have heat stroke, you have to recover. Yeah. And how do you, how do you get help? Where did you turn to? I was in a very, very, very bad headspace. And you know, when you get heat stroke, you're a bit delusional. I actually Mm -hmm. FaceTimed my mom that lived nine hours away and just, inconsolably crying on the phone just telling her that I didn't have the energy to get up tomorrow to be honest I was I was absolutely broken so I was lucky enough to have a really supportive mother in that circumstance and I'll never forget her impact in the way that she helped me in that time but in terms of people going through something similar that don't have that immediate family support like the only other person to call in Australia would probably be Lifeline, which is like a 1-800 number that you can call when you're at the point of, you know, really, really intense crises. But Now, Australia has a national insurance program or a national healthcare system. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. Access to mental healthcare services is somewhat easier. I'm just assuming. I don't actually know this. But, But like here... Like you cannot get placed in a mental facility and, you know, in a, in a crisis very easily. If a patient is going through a mental health crisis and even if they're non-compliant, so say they say, you know, no, I don't want to go to hospital. No, I don't want to go. We can section them under law and take them to the nearest hospital with psychiatric facilities in there. And it does go under 
Medicare, so the patient isn't directly billed for that, particularly if it's at a point where they are threatening to take their own life. So in yeah. that way, I think we are very lucky in Australia in retrospect. Yeah. And, and that, you yeah. know, the same thing probably happens here. It just, you have to jump through a bunch of hoops to, you know, because the care that the care that people get is good, but yeah. it's getting it. It's getting there. <laughs> that is always the struggle for people. Yeah. Um, and then paying for it. Um, because everyone, because there is no national health insurance here. Yeah, I digress. Yeah. So you're in this deep, dark place. You don't know if you can get out. You have your mom that, that helps you. And you've been on a journey to care for yourself ever since. And yeah. tell me what that self-care involves. Yes. So that self-care, as you said, it was a journey I had to sort of reparent myself and retrain myself to take care of myself with this new diagnosis of PTSD. So in the embryonic stages of my recovery, my self-care really went down to sort of basic human needs because when you are in that really dark place, sometimes even getting out of bed can be too much of an effort at that point for you. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, so it went down to that really basic self-care. So making sure I was hydrated, making sure making sure that I was eating properly, making sure that I was getting, you know, 15 to 20 minutes of sunlight at a time, not drinking too much coffee, taking my medications, taking my vitamins and my supplements. Once I started to get a little bit better on the road to recovery, I started to implement light exercise. So that is something that is really difficult for a lot of um healthcare workers because they are doing the 12 hour shifts and you know you're working walking around so much at work it's almost detrimental to train yeah at the beginning or the the end of your shift if I'm on shift and I haven't exercised in the last like three or four days that doesn't mean that I'm going out and flogging myself in the gym it doesn't mean that I'm going out (laughs) doing like excessive weights you can literally be like a 30 minute Pilates class a big swim in the ocean like a walk down the beach like However you get that serotonin and dopamine going in your brain from from exercise, definitely commit to that and make it a routine. Um, I don't know if I've ever flogged myself. (laughs) If you're getting flogged, that's such an Australian saying like, oh, mate, I I am absolutely flogged. (laughs) I don't think I've ever done that in the gym. I've done (laughs) done things in the gym. Oh my God, that's so funny. Um, Um, Okay. A lot of people have said that on the show before that that exercising is a way to get out the stress. Um, But you're talking about the chemistry of exercise to like bring the happy feelings in. You slowly worked your way up from like just getting in the shower and eating a meal to having a good routine, something consistent. Um, with some physical activity. How did you figure out what what would work for you? Yeah, yeah. So in terms of like working out what worked for me, the first part of that was actually getting to know my own warning signs and my own red flags within myself, which I think every healthcare professional needs to sit down and really think about. So what are the signs that I show when I am mentally declining? What signs and symptoms if you put it that way, am I exhibiting when I'm under a lot of stress, a lot of pressure? So for me, it was like, I'd get brain fog. My limbs would feel really heavy. I'd feel nauseous. I'd feel a bit anxious and panicky. Um, So in terms of guiding me through that, I had an excellent psychologist who was actually an ex-paramedic and a psychiatrist on top of that, who put me on 
um, some antidepressants to help me sort of get through the initial stages of the PTSD, but I was guided heavily by them. And they also taught me to nurture the social and familial relationships that I had with people outside of work so I could sort of regain a sense of identity. It wasn't all tied up in the medical field, which a lot of healthcare professionals I notice succumb to in a way, like because it is such a demanding job, it's hard to sort of switch off. So I'm I'm kind of stuck on what you said because I really liked it. So when you have a symptom and then you have an intervention for your symptom, can you give me an example of that? Yeah, most definitely. So for example, one of the symptoms that I experienced with my PTSD was lightheadedness and my limbs would feel really heavy. And that's when I was in a situation where I felt there was a threat around me. Um, And my intervention for that is so simple as removing myself from that space and going to lay down for 15 to 20 minutes and breathing my way through it before it went into the stage that I was having a panic attack or I was like disassociated. Another example of that could be I would get a feeling of nausea when I'd sort of come off the back of night shifts. So I'd feel Mm -hmm. really nauseous in the morning when I'd wake up, my digestion would be all over the place. And that to me was a sign that I drank too much caffeine and that my body needed rest. So I would stop all coffee, drink a lot of water and allow my body to completely rest. So it's almost like intuition, using your intuition to guide your next move. Um, Yeah. Learning to listen to yourself. Yes. Your body and your mind are going to cope one way or another. Oh yeah. And it's either going to be positive or it's going to be scary, negative, you know, not ideal, right? So, yes. And yes. if you can take control in that moment and swing it the way that you would want to, I so I like that you are kind of getting in front of in front of that and coping differently, choosing to cope differently, rewiring your brain to cope differently. Um, it that takes a long time. No, it's definitely like, it takes it takes a lot a lot of effort. So Georgia, how long has this whole process taken for you to find some peace on your journey? So it has taken me six and a half months to get to a place where I can honestly say that I have found peace and found closure with that job that precipitated the PTSD diagnosis. So yeah, I'd say about half a year. Wow. Do you feel like it's going to be difficult to manage going forward? There was definitely a stage where I thought it was going to be extremely difficult for me to cope and to find enough resilience to move forward in my career. There was definitely a point where I considered changing my career path. Um, Mm -hmm. But when I was in my later stages of recovery, so in the last three months, I've actually used this experience to add more meaning to my work. And it's also made me a more empathetic practitioner. It's made me extremely passionate about mental health. And I think that we always need more passionate mental health advocates actually out in the field. So I'm using this as my little superpower now instead of instead of a barrier. I love that. So you really got some good medical care. You got some good health care for yourself. Um, you do exercise. You strengthened your relationships around you. And I want to talk a little bit about that because that is not easy to do in a pandemic. And here no. in the States, 
we have all been quarantined for a year. And um, I know Australia got their shit under control early on. So I know that that y'all haven't had the dumpster fire that we have. But still, how even in normal times, sometimes making stronger relationships is hard. So is there anything in particular that you did? There actually there actually was a few things that I really tried to implement because you're so right in what you're saying. In one, we had a pandemic and two, when you are experiencing mental health difficulties, it can be quite hard to strengthen your relationships with the people around you, particularly your family and your partner and your work colleagues, etc. So one thing that I discovered quite early on in my recovery was being able to implement boundaries both for myself and the people around me because one thing I really didn't want to do was overload anyone around me with the burden that I was carrying. So having Mm -hmm. really open and honest conversations with my loved ones, my friends, my colleagues saying, hey, this is where I'm at. This is what I've just been diagnosed with. This is what that looks like for me. I'm I don't love you any less, but I just want to let you know, for example, moving forward, I'm not going to be able to go out all night. I don't feel comfortable drinking while I'm adjusting to my new medications. I might be a bit more hypervigilant than I usually am, Mm -hmm. but I'm really working to get better and I would really love your support. But at any time, if this gets too much or you feel triggered or you don't want to talk about it, you also need to respect yourself and remove yourself from the conversation. So people that really loved me responded really well to that vulnerability. I I think that you're very lucky. <laughs> I I'm just thinking about yeah. how how that would be accepted in different cultures and even even in the states, the cultures vary by state, very it's so different wherever yeah. you are yeah. and families are sometimes not accepting. Yep. And I just I, I think about – well, first of all, I really value that honesty. Obviously, that's totally something I was subscribed to by sharing a lot here on the podcast. Um, yeah, and I think I a lot that. of people have fear to share that. They think that maybe that vulnerability will make them look weak, will make them, you yeah. know – I don't know. It's that stigma. It all comes back to that stigma that yes. we were talking about in the beginning. And I, I don't know if everyone really has, I don't want to say the privilege, but the comfort with being able to talk about it like that, which is too bad. Yes. Um, did you ever find that to be difficult? Yeah, most certainly. Um, And I think I do definitely acknowledge the fact that the people around me were really supportive and it could have been a lot more difficult for me. Um, So I I am quite lucky and I really do appreciate that. Um, For people that are going through that struggle of finding people that will honour their boundaries and respect what they're going through, when I started my work Instagram account I found that I connected with a lot of like-minded people and I think that was also during the pandemic so I think reaching out even on like an anonymous platform where you can sort of like Instagram like a different account if you don't want your family and friends to sort of see it and you want something a little bit more private um, I definitely encourage people to follow pages that they find inspiring and people that can relate to them on that on that level of what they're going through to build that community and army around them 
if they don't have the privilege of having it in their own home. That's just Mm -hmm. a quick aside. But in terms of getting a little bit of backlash and sort of finding difficulties in being candid about my experience, it was actually a lot of my work colleagues that made it very difficult for me, you know, because in paramedicine, we do have that dark humor as a coping mechanism. Yeah, People do joke about things they probably shouldn't joke about in a normal conversation and they are very desensitized to mental health because of the years of jobs that they've been to before, you know, so... I'm like literally nodding my head. All the nurses that I worked with, they were like, well, this is just what you have to, like, this is normal. Like, this is what you go through. This is what you have. Like, it's not, it's not okay. What I'm, what I'm feeling and what my, how I'm responding, my body, like, this is not normal. It's not okay that I'm going through And it's, it's crazy. It's crazy. This like acceptance that the culture in healthcare has like you have to suffer in silence because we all suffered like it's almost like well we all suffered so you have to suffer the way we did yeah it's almost like an initiation this weird like weird weird thing where you have to go through this initiation to be like respected or you have to work this many consecutive hours and it's kind of like a badge of honor yeah yeah. And it's really which like, is, which is so backward. <laughs> it's so unhealthy. And so it, it's part of the structure though. It's part of this. Yes. It's very structure that we've right. all, we've all built it and we're all, um, enabling that behavior because we're all like contributing to that system. And yes, yes. One of the things that that I I love about the show is that like these systems have failed us for so long and they are not coming to help us. They are not coming to like cure our mental health issues or help us figure out what self-care works for us. Like there isn't something out there doing that. And like the sparkle that a new grad has, you know, when you're like brand new and you're full of energy and full of questions and like excited and energized to do the work. Um, But when you feel dehumanized and broken down so much Mm -hmm. and, and then your colleagues say, well, you're, you're even worse because you're not coping the way that you should be. Well, that, that breaks it down even more and you lose your sparkle. And I love that sparkle. I want everyone to have the sparkle. Um, yes, patients deserve that too. Patients deserve us at 100%. our at our best. We deserve to live lives that that we're proud of and that bring us joy and that we feel fulfilled in. Um, sorry, I got on a soapbox, but um. no, I love that. I'm, I'm here for it. I'm like, yes, sister, yes. Preach. Um, okay. Preach. What, is there anything that you do like day to day that's luxurious or like special thing? I don't know how to yes. ask this question. Bring me but... a face oil and I will be your best friend forever. I love my skincare routine. And that is something that no one can take away from me. No one can interrupt my skincare routine time that's a ritual that I have with myself and that is something that I find really luxurious and like a self-care 
it's a really small thing, but it's, it, it brings no. me so much joy and it makes me feel so nourished. I too have a routine. I must know what products do you use? <laughs> I am a massive Aesop advocate. I actually worked for them for three years down here in Australia and they do the full skincare routine, cleanser, toner, moisturizer, vitamin C serum, face mask, exfoliant. Like I'm all over it. But So can you yes, spell this brand? Yes, it's A-E-S-O-P. And Aesop was actually a Greek storyteller and he would go around in ancient Greece and, yeah, tell fables, um, very, very famous historical fables. So it's actually named after that. Do you know if folks in the States can get it or do you have to order it from yeah. like – I will check them out. So yeah. you you do – you scrub, you have a toner – then, then what do you do? Yeah. Like a serum? You do your vitamin C? A serum, then, vitamin yeah. C, or like, um, yep, vitamin C of a nighttime. And then I'll put like a vitamin E one on with like lots of antioxidants in the morning. Uh-huh. Okay, okay. So changing it up. Um, and then I'll just go in with like a jojoba oil or like a nice rosehip oil over the top to like give myself a deep moisturize. So, okay, but you're like 24. Um, and so yes. I'm sure, I'm sure a lot of the older people that are listening are like, yeah, what does she have wrong with her skin? So, <laughs> but what I'm hearing from you is it's a ritual. That's the self-care yes. part. It's the time and the way that it feels and, and that, right? Yes. And I also, um, experienced um, extremely cystic and hormonal acne in my first year on road because of the cortisol spikes and the caffeine okay. consumption. So skin to me is like a very, very integral part of my self-care because I know how quickly it can go bad if you're not taking care of it properly. You and know, I was on industry, so. I was on your Instagram and I saw a before and after picture of the cystic oh acne my God. and the after and I was like, oh, Oh my gosh. Like you would never oh know. My God. I never, I never knew. Oh. And I just happened to see this picture. Um, so speaking of Georgia, if people love your message, if people are like, she is definitely a person I want to stay in contact with, or maybe they have questions about paramedicine. Um, how can yeah. they find you? Yeah. So they can find me on Instagram. Um, my Instagram handle is at Life of a Paramedic. I love it. Thank you so much for being here today. It was such a pleasure to have you. Yes, thank you so much for having me. I've really enjoyed this conversation. It's very special to connect with people all around the world going through something similar. So it's very meaningful to me. Oh, listeners, I hope you felt that way too. And we will talk to you again next week. You can extend a dose of support even further by visiting us on Facebook, Instagram, on our website, or by giving us a rating or review. You can always support the show monetarily on patreon.com slash dose of support. Dose of support is written, organized, emails, edited, produced, published, all the things by me, Vanessa Casper, with exclusive music by John Schreier. I'm punching out this week but I will be back in your ears next week for another Dose of Support.